Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work-from-home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do on these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provided our global SALT conferences, which our guests today has been to several of those. Uh, and what we're trying to do at those conferences and on these SALT Talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Abdul Masin Al-Omran to SALT Talks. Abdul Masin is the founder and chief executive officer of the Family Office and the chairman of the board of Petiol Asset Management, which is the investment arm of the Family Office, which is the uh, Petiol is based in Zurich, Switzerland. And uh, the Family Office is a, an asset management company that has an increasingly digital focus, which is something that we're going to talk about today. Uh, prior to founding the Family Office in 2004, Abdul Masin was part of the private wealth management team at Goldman Sachs in London. He started his career at Gulf International Bank in 1988, after which he worked in reputable financial institutions such as the Saudi International Bank, Riyadh Bank, and InvestCorp. Abdul Masin holds a degree in industrial management with a finance major from King Fahad University of Petroleum and Minerals and an MBA from the City University in London. He's coming to us today uh, from beautiful Manama, Bahrain, somewhere uh, Anthony and I have been several times over the last few years. But Abdul Masin is also a Saudi national, so we, we also have you know, great relationships in the kingdom. So looking forward to talking about the growth uh, of industry and the financial industry in particular in the region, and also the exciting things that are going on at the family office. Uh, just a reminder, if you have any questions for Abdul Masin during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Uh, Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And I will say Anthony is in a little bit better mood than he was about 10 hours ago. Uh, so we're looking forward to seeing his smiling face here this morning. I won't comment further on that, but Anthony, I'll turn it over to you for the interview. First of all, for those of you that are listening, John Darcy has like zero political judgment and zero political instincts, but enough about the feud between me and John Darcy, which started about 1030 last night. I mean, we'll discuss it later on another salt talk. Abdul Molson, where are you beaming in from? Bahrain? Where are you right now? Yes, I'm out of our uh, office in Bahrain. So, so Abdul Molson, before we get started on your business and your uh, professional career, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the way you grew up, where you grew up, what got you into this business, why did you come into this business, uh, and yeah, tell us something about your personal story. Sure. Uh, I'm originally from Saudi Arabia. I grew up there. I did all my Education in, in, in Riyadh, Abdul Mohsen, or yes, yes, I I grew up in Riyadh. Our, our family is in one of the oldest families in Riyadh. We are about fifteen hundred people today in Riyadh, and um, I did my uh, high school in Riyadh. Then I moved to the Eastern Province, King Fahad University of Petroleum and Minerals, uh, and uh, studied there. Then the bridge was uh, being built to Bahrain, and Bahrain being the financial center in the 80s uh, and still uh, an important financial center in the region, uh, I took the opportunity to come to Bahrain. Uh, 
So no, I, I, I want to stop you there, if you don't mind, because you're talking about a bridge being built to Bahrain. So explain that. Bahrain is effectively an island Correct. in the Arabian Gulf, and it is not too far, obviously, off the coast of Saudi Arabia. And so this bridge was built to connect the two countries. Correct. 1986. And, 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 and this unleashed a lot of uh, capital deployment for the Bahrainis, and it helped the Saudis as well. Explain that if you don't mind, because we have a lot of people beaming in from the United States that may not understand that relationship. Sure, uh, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia are part of the GCC, the Gulf uh, Council, uh, where uh, uh, they are all one family, honestly. They, uh, they, they are very in a very close tie, whether uh, into marriage, whether into tribal, economic uh, support to each other. Uh, so uh, during the times of King Fahad, King Fahad gave the order to uh, build the bridge uh, with, the, with Sheikh Isa, who was the father of the current King Hamad. And the, that was a very important strategic move uh, to uh, tighten the uh, relationship between the two countries uh, and allow Bahrain to uh, be closer uh, to the most important country in the region, which is Saudi Arabia, as you all know. And, and, and so now you're, you're getting your career started. How did you end up in financial services? Well, uh, I, I, it's interesting. Uh, in 1988, I was sent to a firm. Maybe a lot of people don't know that firm when I mention it. A firm called Money Honey, Manufacturers Hanover, to New York. So I, I went to the city and got my training in corporate finance and credit analysis. Then once I got back to Bahrain, I managed to work at the credit department. Then I was asked to join the bond portfolio uh, investments during the uh, Iraq invasion of Kuwait. And from there, I got exposed to the investment world. And then I moved to uh, in different positions and different banks. And then I ended up with uh, most important alternative firm at that time, uh, which was the pioneer of private equity uh, distribution in this region that was Invesco, became a partner. And as I was about to start up my own business, uh, I got a call from Goldman Sachs. I joined Goldman for about two years. And then I said, I'll go back and establish a wealth management platform, lack of creativity. I chose the family office as a name. Well, no, it's a great name. It's got a, it's got, and it's obviously you've built an amazing brand in the region. And again, just for uh, the uh, the people on the call, Manufacturers Hanover Bank uh, was a great commercial bank in the United States. Merged with Chase, Chase eventually merged with Bank One and J.P. Morgan to create the colossal J.P. Morgan Chase that we have today. And so, uh, and chemical. And chemical, that's correct, and chemical bank. And so I, I left out one of the other big banks that was consolidating. Interestingly enough, Abdul Molson, as you know, all of those banks were Goldman Sachs clients back in the day. Uh, guys like John Darcy, of course, don't remember these names, but you and I are old enough to remember these names. So so let me, let me ask you this question. You're at Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs uh, uh, was still a partnership. And so tell us a little bit about the vintage era of Goldman Sachs prior to its public offering. Actually, I was there during the time once uh, post they went public. So uh, I joined Goldman in 2002 
uh, until 2004. Okay, my bad. I, I thought you got there in 98, so I apologize for that. So you're, you're, no. you're, let me rephrase the question then. You're there just after the public offering. Tell us about what Goldman was like 17 or 18 years ago. Well, um, Goldman, as you know, it's a big drive, uh, very competitive, uh, very focused uh, on results. Uh, so uh, I've learned a lot. I uh, rub my shoulders with the smartest people uh, in the firm. I learned to be uh, much more commercial. Uh, I've always said uh, Goldman helped me to monetize my career. Uh, uh, the thinking, the drive, the creativity, uh, setting up uh, high object, uh, high results uh, oriented uh, really made a big difference for me. And more importantly, as you know, the Goldman and the ex-Goldman network is something uh, not to be matched. So um, let's let's segue into geopolitics for one second. And I the last one to know about geopolitics. Yeah. Well, okay. We can talk about that too if you want. But I want to talk about the region, the Middle East, MENA, Middle East, North Africa, mm-hmm. uh, Saudi, Bahrain. Where you see the future? Uh, and what do you think is happening in the region? And I'll, I'll give a little bit of an editorial comment. Uh, having now, uh, uh, with your help, traveled to Saudi Arabia many times now, I see a country that's in, embarking upon massive reform and massive possibilities for economic growth away from oil. And so I'm wondering if you can comment on that. Sure. Uh, for those people who don't know Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, in terms of uh, size is about two thirds of Western Europe. Uh, so, from a geography, uh, it is an important, big uh, uh, place in the Middle East. Uh, our neighbors are uh, Iran from one side, Iraq, uh, Kuwait, uh, uh, so uh, uh, in the south, Yemen, uh, across the Red Sea, we have uh, Sudan, Egypt, uh, Jordan on the north, um, with uh, close proximity to Israel as well. So uh, when you have all those neighbors, uh, you need to make sure that you are uh, friends with everybody and have the stability. So Saudi Arabia have always uh, 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 played the role of the uh, stable uh, leadership. Uh, have, uh, As we all know, uh, every country uh, experience uh, external, internal, uh, issues, but Saudi have always managed to any of these issues very wisely and continue to ensure a very stable uh, country and co- with the main focus of on developing its own nationals. Uh, Saudi Arabia has 70% of its population today below the age of 40. Uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman vision of 2030 is spot on. Uh, he's addressing what are the needs of those people in 2030. And everything that is happening today is around what will be needed in 2030 by this young population. This young population is very important uh, because uh, they are very tech savvy. I'll give you an example. 500,000 have studied in the United States or graduated from United States universities uh, uh, in the last 15 or 16 years. Well, I, I was gonna I was gonna tag on a question because I I, I just think it's a fascinating thing and it's a, 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 more so for the Americans that are listening in. 
Saudi oil reserves are approximately 25% of the uh, world's oil reserves. Is that fair to say? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I, I, no, sorry, I'm, sorry. No, I'm saying the Saudi oil reserves are approximately 25% of the world's oil reserves. Correct. Okay. And yet the country is in transition away from oil. And the tech industry, as an example, is saying that data is the new oil. And so I would like to get your thoughts on that as it relates to the country, Saudi Arabia, but then also tie it into the family office, your business, some of the things you're doing in terms of uh, masterfully changing the landscape for technology interface in financial services. Let me um, uh, give you an example how advanced the Saudi government moved in terms of technology. If I wanted to renew my uh, passport or my driving license, or I wanted to give a permit for a friend or a driver to take my car from Saudi Arabia to Bahrain, I could do all this digitally today. The Saudi government, the e-government is so advanced, and I have heard specialists who are saying Saudi government, the e-government is more advanced than even the Singaporean e-government. And very few people understand that. And this has been a huge initiative by the Saudi government to ensure that the readiness, and this is the one of very few times that the government has really leapfrogged the private sector in the technology side. Now the private sector, including the banks, are trying to do a catch up with what the government have been doing in the last five years. Well, tell, tell us about the, uh, the future of financial services in your mind and what your vision is for wealthy individuals in the region and how you plan to help them and how you plan to use technology to help them. So, Anthony, uh, you remember your days at uh, Goldman, uh, even my days at Goldman. Uh, we would never have thought that ETFs would replace a lot or algorithm trading would replace a lot of the brokerage business. Who would have ever thought that Robinhood or uh, E-Trade and others are almost trading at zero cost? This is something that is happening today, and we will see a huge, huge acceleration in the whole financial services industry in the coming five years. I used to think two years ago, I thought in 10 years. Today, I think it's five years, if not three years. Huge uh, revolutionization of the industry is going to take place. We are at a, an important inflection point. Our region is no different. People would like to get financial simplification of their lives. So anyone who would provide that financial simplification of their financial life is going to be a winner. Today, we, there are a lot of individual fintech companies that have addressed parts of the financial uh, complexity, but there has to be yet someone to be able to put this together all the way from current account, which is digital banking, to either consumer loans, to mortgages, to investments, uh, pledging your investments for further investments for those people who want to uh, do margin trading and so on and so on, credit card, uh, producing your taxes, your income statement and balance sheet. Can you imagine just going to one place and all that is done for you? 
I think we'll see this in less than five years. Well, I, you know, I think it's amazing, which is why I wanted to bring it bring it up to you. Um, you know, I'm I'm personally blown away by the rapid modernization, if I'm even pronouncing it right, the modernity, if you will, of Saudi Arabia. You know, I see Darcy laughing at me pronouncing modernization. Okay, it's almost like you didn't get just, much sleep last night. This is modernization. Okay, okay. All right, modernization. Hold on a okay. Let me. I got. A, I got a niche, Abdul Molson. I just have to fix my eye while I'm talking to you. But, but the entrepreneurship, the modernity in the country, because I can't pronounce modernization because I'm exhausted. Uh, let's talk a little bit about those two things. And how has the region been successful in create creating this new technology ecosystem? Well, uh, I, as I said, governments in this region have focused into how do they improve the quality of lives of people in these countries. Uh, while other countries around us have spent most of their money on uh, weapons or uh, financing uh, uh, the wrong people, our countries have really invested in its own nation. And we have seen the sovereign wealth funds building very important strategic portfolios that will enable us to continue doing that. In addition, it has taken the lead, as I said, in creating a platform that makes it easier for businesses to do that. So I'll give you an example. By the end of this month, we will be able to onboard clients in Saudi Arabia all digitally with seven clicks. Can you imagine the whole KYC is done digitally? Well, yeah, I mean, that it, it, to me, it's fascinating. Um, before I turn it over to John, because we've got a ton of questions coming in from the audience participation, and I want to ask you about uh, Neom and what your thoughts are there. And just for our American uh, listeners, Neom is a brand new project uh, um, from Prince MBS uh, talking about building a $600 billion city uh, sort of in the northeast quadrant up alongside the Red Sea in Saudi Arabia. This would be a city of the future. Uh, and it would be a city that I think would uh, transform Saudi Arabia for that matter. And I just wondered if you could give us your thoughts and opinion on that and what, where, where you see that uh, development going. Yeah, uh, you know, for most people, when they hear these projects, they think it's, uh, it's a mirage. For us, it isn't because we, do, uh, we did live what happened in this region. I'll give you an example. About 70 miles away from where I'm sitting today, there's a city called Jubail. So if you went there in the 70s, it's just desert next to the sea. Today, Jubail has, is the world largest petrochemical complex in the world with eight, that produces about 8% of the petrochemicals in the world. Okay. South of it is Rastan Nova, which is the largest oil export terminal. So no one can imagine what takes place over a 20, 30 year in this region. So Aniom, it's a strategic location. Uh, the vision of Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, is going to be realized. Uh, are we going to realize it a few years earlier or a few years later? I don't know, but it will happen. I assure you, I've seen a lot of visions in this region that got executed, and these are going to be a game changer for the region. 
Uh, my last question before I turn it over to John, the UAE and Bahrain, as well as Saudi Arabia, have made ver- maintained very good relations with the United States, but they are also increasingly looking to the East to develop good commercial ties to China. What do you, as a, in the Middle East, see the position of the Middle East, I should say? What, what do you see it in terms of the evolving world order, and how would you like to see it? Well, in 2005, it was my first time to go to China, and I visited with our dear friend, David Tars. Yes. In, two, in 2007, I took 30 of my investors to China trip, and then we repeated this trip uh, twice in 2009, 2010. And all of them said, wow, all this has taken place without us seeing. I remember it took them to 10 cents, as an example, with Frank Tang, whom you know as well. And everybody thought it's expensive and uh, they've missed it. But look where we are today uh, compared to 2010. That the whole Asia, not only China, is, we all know it is going to be the growing part of the world. That doesn't mean that we are turning our back to the West. We, we are uh, educated in the West. Most of our nations are educated in the West and understand the West well. So we'll continue that, those relationships for sure. But if you uh, look at how Saudi Arabia has always been, as I said to you, has been always creating stability in everything it does. Saudi Arabia is the custodian of the, of the two holy mosques, which is for Islam. In Islam, our greetings is assalamu alaikum, may peace be on you. So Saudi Arabia tries to always be in peace with itself, with everyone it deals, but ensure that it is not going to be a victim of any nation. For any company, you will never rely on one supplier. You always have to diversify, whether it's portfolio, whether it's relationships, especially given the Asian proximity. The pilgrims brings a lot of Asians for the last 1,400 years plus uh, to Mecca. So the familiarity of uh, the the Asian uh, continent uh, is something that we do understand. Uh, we might not understand the language, but most of them speak English. We speak English uh, and uh, understanding the culture uh, and the proximity is very important for us. Okay, well, I, I appreciate you coming on, Abdul Mohsen. I'm looking forward to the pandemic ending so I can get back to Bahrain and eat and cut with you. That was the last time I was there, frankly. I was with your son in that amazing restaurant. I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey so that he can uh, ask some uh, uh, questions from the audience. And and I apologize for mispronouncing modernization, but I haven't slept in uh, 24 hours. There's there's a small thing going on in the U.S. right now that I happen to have been involved in the last six months. So, so go ahead, Darcy. Start pronouncing the things appropriately. Okay, go ahead. I doubt, I doubt you will sleep tonight. Yeah, no, it's going to be another. It's going to be another interesting night. Although I'm very confident in the outcome now, uh, uh, for a number of different things that I've learned today, I, I do believe that the vice president will be the 46th president uh, by January 20th, and I think that'll be good for the world. Actually, it'll also calm things down. Uh, and but that's for another topic. That's for another day, Mr. Abdul Molson. Go ahead, John. I know you got a ton of questions. Go ahead, yeah. fire them in. 
Absolutely. It was great eating uh, at Cut in Manama, also Riyadh, home to a lot of beautiful restaurants, beautiful Italian restaurants. We mm-hmm. have some great meals recently in Riyadh, and I think you know people would be blown away going to both of those cities, Manama and Riyadh, just to see how quickly things are growing uh, and modernizing, as well as Abu Dhabi and Dubai, which obviously we, we have uh, great friendships there and had our conference most recently at, at Salt Abu Dhabi. And you spoke at Salt Abu Dhabi, and you we're on a great panel with Abdallah Obekan, and he's a leading thinker in the fields of digitization, digital transformation. You guys had a great conversation. I would encourage people to go on our uh, YouTube channel and check it out if they haven't seen that talk. But one thing you talked about is the importance in this industry of scaling fast and failing fast. What are the benefits of taking a more aggressive approach to digitization and, and modernization of your systems, even if it leads to failure in the in the initial phase? Yeah, like any business, uh, you have to try things. Uh, but in the digital uh, world, uh, you need to fail early or fail fast and learn and adopt. Technology allows you to maneuver very quickly. Uh, the skill sets that are available whether from design, whether from coding, uh, the uh, data science, etc., uh, enables you to adjust and uh, move to the next level. So uh, we we are, uh, I wouldn't say we have done, but we have uh, really uh, made a big progress in our, uh, in both journeys, our digitalization uh, journey and the digital transformation. Uh, Both uh, projects are going very well, and uh, I expect that uh, by uh, mid-next year, uh, we will be in a very unique position uh, with our offering, our ability to service our clients uh, much more than we do today. One thing you talked about in that uh, panel at Salt Abu Dhabi was the importance and the challenge of creating a culture of innovation and a tech technology forward type of culture uh, within your firm. What are the things that you've done at the family office to allow yourself to build that type of culture? And how do you think it's benefited your business? The culture is one of the four C's. I always say, when you buy a diamond, you you look at the four C's. And in order to have a perfect digital transformation, uh, you need to have the four C's. The first C is you get the commitment from the board and the management. And that is one of the most difficult things to do, to obtain. Number two, you need to be client-focused. Everything you are doing is not anymore about the firm. It's more about, much more about what the client needs. What are the client's pain points? How can I make their life much easier to do things? Number three is the culture, which is the most difficult thing in the whole journey. And the culture you need to start early. You need to educate your team. You need to uh, train them uh, in workshop. You need to get them to take courses. Uh, and through this process, which would take an average firm, if they are lucky, if they do it properly, two years. And if you do it well, you will know who is in your firm are going to be continuing with you and who are the ones who will decide most likely themselves that this is not for them, and they would like to go and work in a much more traditional, slower base uh, industries or style of management. So that is really the most difficult. From everything I have read and we have experienced, 
you need to expect that about 50% of your team are going to make it and 50% they're not going to make it over two to three years. So they would be replaced. You would not need to replace the 50% because with digitalization, digital transformation, you would have gained some efficiencies uh, that will enable you to operate at a higher multiples of scale with lower number of people. The new 25 people percent, let's say, that you would bring in uh, to replace the 50% that went out are going to come with a completely, completely different way of thinking, operating. Uh, if you come to uh, our office, you will see that people are putting stickers on the walls, posted. They are writing uh, on glass windows. Uh, it's a different environment. It's like, it's like a yeah. mini Google type of environment. Absolutely. So you have to accept that and you need to uh, try to weave uh, the old culture with the new culture. A lot of firms make a mistake with developing a separate digital business, not being integrated with the, with the original business. But that's the most difficult thing. The fourth C uh, is going to be the cost. A lot of firms think that through digitization and digital transformation, cost is going to go down. Absolutely not. You have to invest. Your cost would actually go up as a dollar amount. But once you really make it, you are going to get much more clients, number of clients, which would make the cost per client way, way lower. And very few people understand this. So I recently got a demo of your asset management platform, wealth management platform. It's fascinating. And I understand you have a new launch coming uh, potentially early next year. Is that something you guys are talking about publicly? And where do you see the firm going in the next five or 10 years? We have an audience question from Matt's talking about that, uh, what, what you see the firm doing in the next five to 10 years. As I said before, uh, the world is going to be much, much more connected. Uh, there are a lot of great fintech companies out there that could not scale. They could not have the clients, but they really have unique products. So what we are doing, we are preparing ourselves to plug and play with some of those fintech that have an edge. So they would generate revenue, but not at a very high cost to us and our clients. But adding them together as a puzzle will give you a beautiful picture. If that is, that's a simplification of it. Another thing is the ability to connect with the bigger firms that whether it's BlackRock, whether it's Fidelity or E-Trade and so on and so on, and allowing the clients to access a lot of those funds almost at zero cost. And that's going to be a big game changer in the coming five years. So Anthony talked a little bit earlier about how uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has invested a lot through the Public Investment Fund and other entities to build a technology portfolio, but also build a technology ecosystem in Riyadh, in Jeddah, and other places as well. Can you comment on sort of the maturity of the venture capital industry in the kingdom and, and the yeah, access to financing for early stage projects that, that exists, not just uh, in the kingdom in Riyadh, but also in, in Bahrain and the region as well? Yeah, uh, the Saudi government have not only encouraged, but also have been funding uh, giving all the help to the small startups, setting up funds, encouraging the banks, encouraging investors to invest in all of those startups. Uh, if you look at the time span, 
things have moved extremely fast in this region. Uh, if you look at Kareem, for example, have been acquired by Uber. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, successful Sug have been acquired by Amazon. So there have been a lot of great examples that have really motivated a lot of the youth uh, that got educated in computer science and business and finance to really venture and take the risk. Uh, we all know that this is not easy. Uh, the failure rate is very high. But the fact that there is that appetite to take risk, supported by the governments, creating uh, fintech uh, uh, hubs, uh, Bahrain recently announced 973 Technology Hub, uh, the FinTech Bay. So uh, uh, Dubai has that. Uh, Abu Dhabi is having now uh, another one. Uh, Saudi have been having it. So this is going to really mushroom, I believe, over the coming 10 years. Yeah, it's it's very exciting for us. You know, we've spent an increasing amount of time in the region, in the UAE, in Bahrain, and in Saudi. And just to reiterate what we talked about earlier, been blown away by the amount of entrepreneurial spirit that's emerging among young people uh, in the region. And we think it's going to be an area of growth around the world. You know, you look around Europe, you look around the United States, the world is sort of starved of growth. And um, with the demographics and the amount of entrepreneurship in the region, we think it's going to be a a continued area of growth. So we're very excited to work with you and work with others uh, around the region to grow our presence and and grow awareness of what's going on uh, in the region. So Abdul Mahsan, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Anthony, do you have a, a final word for Abdul Mahsan before we let him go? Well, I, I know that John wants to wear that headdress someday, Abdul Mahsan, but you and I have been friends for two decades. And so I'm going to insist that under no circumstances is he allowed to do that. Okay. I want him to continue his life with that hillbilly hair, with that center part that makes him look like Ichabod Crane. Okay. So no, no headdress for him. Okay. Is that an agreement you and I have before I sign off? Well, uh, the reason I, one of the reasons I have this is, uh, I don't have his hair, so I have to cover up some. Thank you, Abdul Mahsan. <laughs> Anthony was hurting my feelings. It's too and you political, saved man. That is too politically correct for me, especially coming from Bahrain. <laughs> well, God bless you. Congratulations Thank on you. this great, great business that you've built. And uh, John and I are looking forward to the prospects of potentially doing uh, uh, many more SALT co- conferences in the region. You were an amazing partner to our event in Abu Dhabi. And so we're looking forward to having you do that for us uh, in the region in the future once the pandemic ends. Thank you. It's an honor. See you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye now.